Throughout history, there have been people whose stories of their mysterious ways have grown into legends that are larger than life. I'm your host, Leah. I think I'm Phil today. And I'm Steve. Today we are discussing all manner of mysterious people. So grab your spoon and get comfortable. If you have an appetite for the strange and bizarre, then pull up a chair and grab a spoon for another intriguing serving of Remnant Stew. Remnant Stew is gluten-free, organic, made from all natural free-range ingredients and guaranteed to provide the recommended daily serving of curiosity. Well, of course, today, January 17th, is Martin Luther King Day here in the United States. It's a federal holiday. Many of you may be having the day off, so we hope you're enjoying the day. Martin Luther King Day celebrates the life and accomplishments of Dr. Martin Luther King. Um, He promoted civil rights through nonviolent civil disobedience. And he's perhaps best known for his I Have a Dream speech in 1963. Mm -hmm. And it's Martin Luther King Jr. That's correct. Martin Luther King Jr. Day. That's true. His father was Martin Luther King Sr. Always confuses my students when I talk about Martin Luther Martin Luther, Martin Luther King, Martin Luther King Jr. Well, now, Wednesday, January 19th, is the day that listeners to Remnant uh, (laughs) Remnant Stew, let's try that again, Remnant (laughs) Stew should love. It's National Museum Selfie Day. Oh, yeah. Right. Right. What's your favorite museum you've ever visited? I love the Houston uh, Museum of Natural Science, which which we always joke, you know. Is there one of unnatural science? Because that would be interesting. But I love that museum. That would museum. be a good museum, too. But yeah. <laughs> true. True. But we we visit there. It's got the dinosaurs. It's got gemstones. Right. Oh, it's just. It is a pretty one. Yeah. I love it. You like? What about you, Phil? I was a Smithsonian. Smithsonian. Is, is oh, yeah. That was pretty Really amazing. hard to be. You can't beat that one. And, and I've been there, but it's like. I, so I feel many. like I've just dipped my toe in it. Oh, you do. You know? I mean, we, I had specific area of it i wanted to go see so i spent like two days in that one and still didn't see it all right and it's like oh wait there's there's how much more oh yeah yeah. isn't it bigger than any (laughs) mall in the world isn't it like 14 different museums or something quite a few i don't know we've talked about it in in an episode before um last summer i was in chicago and i got got a chance to visit the chicago um museum of uh, industry, let's say science and industry, I believe is what it's called. Oh, that would be interesting. And uh, it was an outstanding museum. Plus, it's it's in the only remaining building of the old Chicago World's Fair from 1893. Oh, wow. That would be cool just to go walk yeah, through Yeah, science and, and industry, that's at, what it's Looking called. at the architecture. So, right. it's, so it's not in that building of H.H. H. Holmes, uh, that, that whole no, town. No, <laughs> he's, he's not. His area so. has, has been remodeled, so No. <laughs> Well, anyway, get out to a museum and take a selfie of yourself and send it to us. Today. Oh, yeah. Yeah, do take photos. Right. Now, uh, next Monday, uh, January 24th, I like this day, National Peanut Butter Day. Oh, yeah. What would we do without peanut right. butter? National Peanut Butter Day celebrates one of the most famous foods in the United States. According to the National Peanut Butter Board. Peanut, peanut Butter Board. Peanut I butter like that. Board. I want to get on this. Yeah. <laughs> Peanut butter has existed since the ancient Incas and the Aztecs. It's believed Thank that you. they were the first people to transform roasted peanuts into a paste. So good, good going back Spread there. Spread that around, folks. And I think right. w- weren't the Aztecs the one that that also uh, invented hot chocolate? Something like That's that. That's true. Something yeah. like that. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> well, they had 
They had chocolate, although it was bitter tasting. They right. didn't. They didn't know about sugar, but. Uh, <laughs> and then uh, Should Wednesday, we have gone back and taught them the Reese's pieces. Right. <laughs> Wednesday, January twenty-six is Australia Day. Hey. Australia Day commemorates the arrival of the first fleet of seven. I'm uh, sorry, of eleven convict ships from Britain. Yes, that's right. The first British settlers in Australia were convicted criminals. I think what they did was they went to the jails in, in the United Kingdom and said, okay, you can languish here in the dank, or you can go help us settle a new continent. Uh, take your choice. And so many of them chose to get on the boat and go to Australia. Cool. Going I didn't realize your... it was a choice of theirs. Uh, yeah, I think some of them had a choice them? anyway. Some of them may not After have a choice. After a while, it might have been, you're right. going. Yeah, well, that's what I always <laughs> no, thought. Probably thought was, was the case, no, but I think some of them did have a choice too. <laughs> Um, so anyway, that is a, a great day for all of our friends down in Australia. Happy Australia Day to our listeners down there. Yeah. Late in the year of 1593, the governor of the Philippines was executed by Chinese pirates. Guards remained in place protecting the palace while awaiting the appointment of a new governor. It was the night of October 24th when guard Gil Perez was on duty. It was okay. late and Perez, feeling dizzy and exhausted, decided to lean up against a stone wall and rest his eyes for a moment. Upon opening his eyes, he was startled to discover that he was no longer at the palace or even in the Philippines. Instead, he found that he had somehow been miraculously transported thousands of miles across the ocean to Mexico City. He'd been transported. Sweet! Officials noticing his guard uniform began to question Perez, asking who he was. They could hardly believe his incredible story, and so they locked him up at jail. <laughs> so, so he was transported yeah. in his guard uniform. Yeah. That's right. From the well, Philippines well, to yeah. Mexico well, that's better than yeah, showing thankfully. up your birthday suit. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that would have been even, yeah. I mean, he would have been locked up to, anyway. <laughs> but, right. Okay, so bring it in. Months later, news of the assassinated governor finally reached Mexico City, and a ship's passenger recognized Gil Perez and vouched for him. The authorities had no choice but to release Perez and allow him to return home, even though they never understood exactly what happened, and neither did he. Did Perez <laughs> teleport? Was he abducted by aliens and transported across the sea? Because that is one of the, the Saturn was in, in the this. right yeah. angle, acute yeah. to the billboard that Mercury he was leaning in. Retrograde. It, right, yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay. Black hole. It was um, 4 o'clock in the afternoon. So, or is this nothing more than an interesting legend whose details have been embellished beyond belief by the passage of years? Yeah, he was in a coma. <laughs> <laughs> we'll never know for sure, but one thing is certain, whether real or just a legend, Gil Perez is undoubtedly a mysterious person. And this is just one of the many stories we are featuring during this episode of Remnant Stew. Okay, I want to find the wall he leaned against and just start pushing <laughs> Right. Well, you would think that other people, by this time, happens. if it was a portal, right. other people would have the story too. At least by now. But <laughs> they probably bricked it off. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's talk about a mysterious teacher. Uh, you know, I you know I've been an uh, educator for the last uh, forty two years, which is unbelievable in itself. But yeah, that's, that's true. But they can't get rid of me. I keep coming back. <laughs> Over that time, I've known some teachers who were. Well, it's rather odd, I guess. I've known a few that were downright strange. I remember one guy used to take out his electric razor and shave himself right in the middle of his class. <laughs> it was kind of bizarre. But I don't know that I've ever met any that I would really qualify as mysterious. But then I never met Mr. Shoshani, C-H-O-U-C-H-A-N-I, pronounced Shoshani. Part of the mystery about Mr. Shoshani is that isn't even his real name. In fact, no one knows for sure what his real name is. Or was. 
It's it, Steve. Yeah. <laughs> it's believed that he was born in the 1890s in Eastern Europe to Jewish parents, but virtually nothing certain about his past is known. What is certain is that he emerged as, as an especially insightful interpreter of the Talmud or the Old Testament of the Bible and other Jewish teachings, and he spent his life traveling in East Europe, France, the United States, Israel, North Africa, and South America. Wow. He got around, didn't he? Yeah. But he always wore, he always wore uh, pauper's clothes, and he sought food and lodging among friends, which were many. Wherever he went, he left behind many admirers who were astounded by the scope of his knowledge in both Jewish and in general fields, and in his skill at interpreting various, or various different realms to produce stunning new revelations. So he seemed to be able to take knowledge and uh, make new revelations from it. Yeah, very innovative. Right. So I saw things in a different way, different perspective than anybody else had. From a website called uh, H-A-A-R-E-T-Z, I guess it's Heritz.com, we find a terrific art- article uh, titled Goodbye, Mr. Shoshani, written by a person named Yair Shelig, Y-A-I-R, Shelig, S-H-E-L-E-G. According to Shelig, Nobel Prize winner Ellie Weisel writes that he would not be the person that he is today were it not for the fact that one day an amazing, rather curious vagabond came along and informed him that he understood nothing. <laughs> Noted Everything French, you know is wrong. Yeah. Noted French Jewish philosopher Emmanuel Levinas called the same man a, quote, wonderful teacher, unquote, and claimed that he was able to decipher any Talmudic text. Levinas repeatedly emphasized that his own understanding of the Talmud, as expressed in his book, Nine Talmudic Readings, is only the shadow of the shadow of what he learned from his great teacher. Shalom Rosenberg, Hebrew University professor of Jewish philosophy who met the same man a few years before he died in South America in the late 1960s, regards him as his most influential teacher and continues to regret that he has not done enough to disseminate his teachings. And of course, they are all talking about the one one and only Mr. Shoshani. From information compiled through interviews with his friends, it was determined that Shoshani grew up in Eastern Europe as a child prodigy, who from an early age knew the Bible and the Talmud by heart. The prevailing assumption is that he had a remarkable photographic memory and that his mind worked like a scanner. It appears that Shoshani's father would travel with his son through Eastern European villages, earning money from the boy's amazing display of memory skills. That's pretty interesting. But, you know, but you yet put him could, on display, you know, yeah, ask but him a scripture. Yet, besides just the photocopy mind, he could reinterpret it. And right. S- ex- so yeah, it, so he had some intelligence. Yeah, it was right. even more than, wow. So it's not just feedback, but he was he was expounding on right. you know, on it. But I know. guess just as a child, just the, the yeah, just photographic the memory is right. what That's was. That's still impressive. You know, yeah. if, you, if you told him Psalm 33, he would, he would spout it out, you know, wow. he, he could buy memory. Evidently, something in that childhood traumatized him, though, as he would spend the rest of his life as a vagabond, never really utilizing his immense capabilities in any formal framework, like never became a university professor, um, just had a great deal of knowledge that he would share informally. Nevertheless, his insightful explanations of Scripture have left a deep impact on those he came in contact with. He died in Uruguay 
1968. His tombstone reads, quote, The wise Rabbi Shoshani of blessed memory, his birth and death are shrouded in mystery. That is so interesting. Like, I really, I like the idea of a vagabond just, just walking around and, and, and anybody that is interested enough to listen. <clears throat> yeah. It, it right. makes me think of Jesus, and it th- makes me think of the disciples. Yeah, right. And, and and he still met some of these professors and people of uh, these learned people or learned people. Had a great impact, and then on had them. an impact on them just being a vagabond. So he, right, he wasn't like, hey, I'm just on the side of the street preaching or whatever. Yeah, right. It's like he ended up in places to talk to them and have conversations. So he evidently was impressive. liked wherever he went because he had right? a lot of friends that he could stay with. Wow. Well, now let's move on to a, a different uh, mysterious person. From biography.com and also from history.com, we learn about the mysterious Russian known as Rasputin. The rascal. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> For sure. He was born around 1869 to peasant parents. His name, Rasputin, meant where two rivers meet. I guess he could have just as easily been called confluence or something, but uh, <laughs> nevertheless... Uh, that's what it meant the in joy. Siberian, in the Siberian, uh, in the language in Siberia where he was born. When he was a teenager, he underwent a religious conversion and then proclaimed himself to be a healer. Some people in his village said that he possessed supernatural powers. Others just said he was weird. Well, anyway. <laughs> when he was 19, he joined a monastery and was intent on becoming a monk. But then he left after a brief stay in order to get married. So his priorities shifted, I suppose. Yeah, that 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 last rule there. <laughs> <laughs> he and his wife had three children, but he soon abandoned his family and took off for Greece and the area that would uh, become Israel, uh, where he is thought to have been have made several pilgrimages. I think it was called Palestine at the time. <clears throat> in 1903, Rasputin showed up in Saint Petersburg, Russia, where he arrived with a reputation as a mystic and a faith healer. Two years later, he was introduced to Russian Tsar Nicholas II and his wife, Alexandra, who were seeking help for their sickly son, Alexis. Rasputin quickly gained their confidence by seemingly, quote, curing the boy of hemophilia. This action won him access to the Tsar, as well as the passionate support of Alexandra. That is that is so interesting to me, because I don't think there is a cure for and hemophilia. And, and so I wonder exactly what he did or... How he managed to convince them that he did something. Either he really did or he faked it well enough that uh, they believed him. Yeah. His increasingly drunken and lewd behavior, however, reflected poorly on the Tsar and Alexandra. You think? Yeah. (laughs) In fact, it was rumored that Rasputin was Alexandra's secret lover as she continually came to his defense when other members of the court advised the royal couple to distance themselves from the mystery man. But rather than repulse him... Nicholas and Alexandra made him a trusted advisor. When World War I broke out in 1914, Nicholas took off for the military and left Alexandra and Rasputin to attend to domestic affairs. Fearful of Rasputin's growing power, in fact, it was believed by some that he was actually plotting to make a separate peace with the Germans, a group of nobles led by Prince Felix Yusupov lured Rasputin to Yusupov Palace on the night of December 29, 1916. First, Rasputin's would-be killers gave him food and wine laced with cyanide. When he failed to react to the poison, they shot him at close range, leaving him for dead. But a short time later, he recovered 
and attempted to escape from the palace grounds, whereupon his assailant shot him again and beat him viciously. Finally, <laughs> they bound him, still somehow alive, and they tossed him into a freezing river. His body was discovered several days later, and the two main conspirators, Yosipov and Pavlovich, were exiled. Although Rasputin was gone, the last of his prophecies was yet to unfold. Shortly before his death, he wrote to Nicholas to predict that if he were killed by government officials, the entire imperial family would be killed by the Russian people. And his prophecy came true 15 months later when the Tsar, his wife, and all other children were murdered by assassins amidst the Russian Revolution. Oh, wow. So, that is so, so cr- I mean, like, we could do an entire episode on Rasputin. He is a mystery just, man, for sure. Yeah, I mean, in his prophecies and, and all of this kind of stuff, was he just like this very talented con man or you well, know, he hired the assassins he? earlier to say hey when the when they ever do do this go take them all out yeah i mean was that a <laughs> yeah. prophecy or was it just a curse right. was it you know something that he was sounds like a disney movie <laughs> <laughs> anastasia and we kick into song <laughs> now we're moving on to a different part of the world and a different kind of mysterious person uh from a publication called the news herald of ohio we learn of the following story. On Christmas Eve, 1933, in the town of Willoughby, Ohio, a 22-year-old girl with no money and no known family with whom to spend Christmas Eve uh, with awoke, dressed, and walked down the stairs of the boarding house on 3rd Street in Willoughby where she was staying. The girl with high cheekbones and reddish-blonde hair tied a flowered scarf around her neck which matched her blue woolen dress and her blue shoes. Descending the stairs of the boarding house on the morning of Christmas Eve, she met the landlady and asked her for directions to the nearest church. But after giving her directions, the landlady watched as the girl walked in the opposite direction. Blending into the crowd of last-minute shoppers, she became just another face. Approaching a grove of maple trees, she turned and walked down a dirt footpath toward a lonely set of railroad tracks. She stopped at the railroad tracks. In the distance, a New York Central passenger train grew larger and louder as it chugged forward. What happened next will never be known for sure. Did she intend to hitch a free ride home? Did she want to end her life? Whatever her intention, the collision of her slight frame with the train ended her life in an instant. This was the moment in which the girl with an unknown face became a face no one in Willoughby would ever forget. A search of the girl's room at the boarding house turned up nothing. The only clue to her identity was the purse she was carrying, which contained 90 cents and a railway ticket to Corey, Pennsylvania. From then on, she was known as, quote, the girl in blue. Her body was taken to the McMahon funeral home, where residents and constables worked around the clock trying to identify her. What amazed many was that despite her collision with the train, the girl suffered no visible trauma injuries. Her body was laid out at the funeral home for two weeks. More than 3,000 residents visited to pay their respects and to see if they could identify the mysterious girl in blue, but no one could. That's impressive. She gets hit by a train and, and no visible right. scarring yeah, you, or issues with because her you would physical think that body. You wouldn't want to go by and see that, no. No. but I, yeah. that's so, that's weird. I guess and people maybe, might, have wanted, might have wanted to see if it was someone they they were new or you know right, but but right. I'm just saying that 
Yeah. yeah. That she was in a condition yeah, <laughs> to right. be recognized. But maybe the train wasn't going that fast. Or slowing, it was slowing down at the right. station itself. Could be. Right. Willoughby residents raised $60 for a headstone for the girl, and she was laid to rest in Willoughby Cemetery in a plot donated by a resident. Her headstone says, quote, Girl in blue, killed by train December 24, 1933. Unknown, but not forgotten. An additional $15 was placed in a city fund to ensure that geraniums will be placed on her grave once a year. Aww. You know, the, you got to think, really, the city kind of really jumped in. And, they did. And took in. They just adopted her. Right. And, and <clears throat> yeah, because well, that's probably the News accounts of the girl in blue. Craziest, sorry, it's probably just the craziest yeah. death that town has ever seen. Yeah, seeing a train like that. And see that happen. So, yeah. Wow. They really came together. And for no her. idea who she was, for right. sure. Coming together and taking on. Well, news accounts of the girl in blue were printed in newspapers across the country. City officials in Willoughby were contacted by several people with details of their missing family members, but none of them matched the girl in blue. Over the next 60 years, the young woman became a kind of ward of the city, and as her reputation grew, people would come to her grave to leave small tokens, flowers, and coins, but still, no one knew who she was. Well, in 1993, the News Herald ran a review of the story on its 60th anniversary of the incident. The story was picked up by several newspapers, including the Cory Evening Journal in Cory, Pennsylvania. Which was her destination. Right. Yeah. right. The article was read by retired real estate agent Ed Sekarak, who remembered selling a farm in 1934. Sekarak recalled that the farm had been owned by an older couple who had died after falling on hard times at the beginning of the Great Depression. He remembered that the couple had two children, a son and a daughter, who had left for Detroit the previous year looking for work. The daughter was never heard from again. Curious... Sekarek searched through court records and learned that the mysterious girl was Josephine Klimzak. Evidently, her brother had given her train fare to go home for the holidays, but it was unknown why she got off the train in Willoughby. The town of Willoughby now has erected an additional monument on her grave with the correct name, but has also left the original girl in blue marker in place. In fact, a local artist named Robert Rigsby commemorated her by hiring a model and photographed her dressed in blue at the location of the boarding house, the railroad, and at her grave. And the photos now hang in the city hall of Willoughby. That is such a nice story. I mean, it's not a nice story. That, but it's that nice the way had. the town looked after her. But it is. Her. It really the, is. The stranger. They, they yeah. looked after her and, and just <clears throat> kind of adopted her as one of their own. Right. Okay, so this next this next guy... Um, <laughs> Talk about strange. Yeah, it is strange. Yes, he's strange. He's a lot like Rasputin. Um, The Count of St. Germain is a very mysterious historical personality. He may be more legend than man, but we know that he did exist. The Count came to prominence in European high society of the mid-1700s, and he was known uh, among his acquaintances of the time to be an adventurer, scholar, musician, composer, linguist, alchemist. Among yeah. other things. Yeah. And it wasn't like he was just a jack of all trades. Like he was a master of all of those. Wow. Pretty um, impressive. It was very impressive. So basically, if you could achieve it, then Count St. Germain had done so. Um, we know that he spoke at least nine languages. And wow. Prince Charles of Hesse Castle uh, considered him to be, quote, one of the greatest philosophers who ever lived. 
You sure so, he didn't become Shoshani later? <laughs> or the son, or the dad, grandfather of Shoshani? I'm just yeah, maybe uh, just hey, he could have been Shoshani. Idea. So yeah. it was whispered that the count was a gifted alchemist who had achieved eternal life. Voltaire described him as quote a man who knows everything and who never dies. It is also speculated that he was the wandering Jew, which, according to Christian mythology, was a Jew who taunted Jesus on the way to the crucifixion, and so was then cursed to walk the earth until the second coming. I've, in, never, I've never heard that myth before in my life. Well, I had to look it up. So, yeah, so in, in researching, there's a lot of Christian myths, which yeah. is, is fascinating to me. But but I, I've heard of a plant called a wandering Jew, but I didn't know well, that's what it was the, referring to. Yeah, that's exactly what it's referring to. And in, in, in any case, many believe that the Count had been a contemporary of Jesus. I see. So who was the Count St. Germain, really? The, the Count of St. Germain was not a saint and may not actually have been a Count. No one knows truly the circumstances of his birth. Right. Some believe that he was a man of noble birth whose family was disgraced somehow, so he had to hide his true identity. Others believe that he was born long before his presence was documented and that he was, in fact, immortal. Right. Whatever the case, St. Germain never divulged any information about his origins, but toward the end of his life, he claimed that he was the, the son of Prince Francis II uh, Rakotsi, I think that's how you pronounce it, of Transylvania. Dun, dun, dun. That worries all eyebrows right there. Anyone? <laughs> he was well-traveled, having spent time in all manner of European countries as well as Russia and India. He was also said to have a very striking appearance, especially about his eyes. And he was known to be very talented musically. He was a painter of some renown. It's said that he could make the jewels in his paintings appear strikingly realistic. He, he was he, so, Wow, that's something else. A painter yeah. on top of everything else. He he mixed his own dyes. He mixed his own paints, and he did so in such a way uh, that that these jewels seemed lifelike in his paintings. And he would he he was very secretive about mm. it. He wouldn't tell anybody. And there were also claims that he could fix actual diamonds, flawed diamonds. So Count Saint Germain was observed wait, wait, to wait, have. Wait, wait, wait. He could flawed fix, he could fix diamonds. diamonds. And I think I get into that later in the story. Okay. Um, okay. But Sorry, yeah, that he, kinda, he, like, wait, what? <laughs> now, I mean, and not in front of anybody. Like, he would take it away and oh. then bring it back. You know, oh. so, was, so, yeah. So, really, he carved another one and just um, handed it off to it? Okay. He carved another. He just created another. <laughs> yeah. I'm just an Pop, old there lump is. of gold. <laughs> so I'm going to be saying, a diamond someday. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> he was known to have some odd quirks Did like has, uh, other a, people. I was know. his other family like Midas that could just touch stuff and turn <laughs> it to gold? You know, it could have I mean. been. Like, I mean, we just don't know about this guy. It's said that he never ate in public. Okay. Vampire. The, mm. uh, you said it. You said it. We're going to get there. The only well, thing he was seen to partake of was a... Special, special tea. Oh, Finger quotes right. here. Beer. Special tea. <laughs> <laughs> this, along with the rumor of him being immortal, led to some ideas in recent years that he had been a vampire. He's and Dracula. And was right. actually drinking blood. So you said what? Mm. Did you say beer? Yeah, Like beer's beer. never given me any special <laughs> Well, you know, I've known some people who thought it gave special Only makes you powers. think you have special talents. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you might think it, but yeah. Liquid courage, I've heard. And yeah. then it goes away the next day. So. Yeah. Or an hour later. Yeah. Um, he appeared to be... He he always, always appeared to be around 40 to 45 years of age and never seemed to get any older That's than that. That's always what struck me funny about vampirism, right? The first one, how did he get to 45? Well, yeah. then, I, mean, then, I don't know. Maybe, maybe that's really. when he was turned. Just, maybe, I mean, if you're the first one, how do you get turned? 
Okay, I don't know. Yeah, I'm that, just asking the questions okay, here. Okay, that's going way back into origin stories well, I think we've of the lost St. Germain somewhere on the way. <laughs> and, and, and a lot of these stories and legends around surrounding him doesn't yeah. is not about vampires, okay? No, but that course, is just, just one theory. <laughs> I see. Okay. Okay, so Let's move along. But, but more uh, or the wandering Jew. People, I like that one. So yeah, yeah, I like yeah, that yeah. too. So but people of the time in the 1700s weren't thinking vampire at that time. They no. were thinking that that's more of a modern theory. Yeah. They were thinking philosopher's stone, like alchemy, uh, like yeah, he alchemy. had he yeah. had discovered yeah. eternal life. Um so anyway, he just never seemed to ever get any older in spite of being the center of attention in the French court for over 20 years. And he's still 45. Still around 40 to 45 years old. Well, I got a brother-in-law who never ages too. You know, well, you know, yeah. Years right? ago, so. Yeah, and there's – That's yes. Alfred. Go ahead. We know people like that. <laughs> we know people like that. So um, – Anyway, the Count took the European high society of the 1700s by storm. By all accounts, he was an accomplished uh, conversationalist, speaking on many different subjects and in many different languages with, with ease. He was also known as a ladies' man because, of course, of course he's yeah, always 45. And had all of the <laughs> Europe— do everything. And striking eyes. Had all of Europe talking and speculating about him. An uh-huh. Italian adventurer and author wrote of St. Germain in his memoirs, quote, this extraordinary man— Intended by nature to be the king of imposters and quacks, would say in an easy, assured manner that he was 300 years old, that he knew the secret of the universal medicine, that he possessed a mastery over nature, that he could melt diamonds, professing himself capable of forming out of 10 or 12 small diamonds, one large one of the finest water without any loss of weight. All this, he said, was a mere trifle to him. Notwithstanding his boastings, his barefaced lies, and his manifold eccentricities, I cannot say that I thought him offensive. <laughs> in spite of my knowledge of what he was, and in spite of my own feelings, I thought him to be an, an astonishing man, as he was always astonishing me. At least he was entertaining. So, right. so yeah. So, I mean, th- this guy obviously thought the Count was, uh, you know, just... A hoax. Full of yeah, it. Right. <laughs> but he liked him anyway. He, he was fun at parties. So, right. you know. well, so uh, he conversed Count, his way out of those holes. Right. <laughs> Count St. Germain died, and Whoa, I'm using finger quotes oh. again, on February 27th, 1784. There is a record of his death and burial. That didn't stop people from claiming to see him well after that date. Elvis. He just walked away. <laughs> yeah, just like Elvis. So in Maybe he seven, was Elvis. It may, it may, he just had maybe, to go away. <laughs> maybe he was very gifted musically. So. Exactly. Um, and his eyes looked good. I'm yeah. just saying. In 1785, he was seen in Germany with Anton Mesmer, the pioneer hypnotist. Some claim that it was St. Germain who gave Mesmer the basic ideas for hypnotism and personal magnetism. Oh. Official records of Freemasonry show that they chose St. Germain as their representative for a convention in 1785. Well, it could have been left over, you know, from yeah. the- <laughs> that's, that's when they said, but yeah, yeah. 65, We're traveled slow 85, you know. I like that. Mesmer. Mesmer. Yeah. Mesmer the hypnotist. Mesmerizing. That's, right. that's where yeah. mesmerizing comes from. Oh, good. So after the taking of the Bastille and the French Revolution in 1789, the Comtesse de Hamer said that she had had a lengthy conversation with Count St. Germain. He allegedly told her of France, um, France's immediate future as if he knew what were to come. Okay. And in 1821, she wrote, I have seen St. Germain again. Each time, to my amazement, I saw him when the queen, this is Marie Antoinette, uh-huh. was murdered. 
On the day following the death of the Duke in January 1815 and on the eve of the murder of the Duke de Berry, the last time she saw him was in 1820, and each time he looked to be a man no no older than his mid-40s. Okay, so this is 1820, and he had been really big in in the French court of the 1700s. Uh Right. So as a 40 to 45-year-old man. So believers in the court's immortality say that he took the name of Major Frazier for a few years. There are all sorts of speculations as to where the count is now. Some say that he showed up in New Orleans in 1902 as Jacques Saint-Germain, who claimed to be a descendant of the count, but when he never aged... They're like, yeah, in the family. People speculated that he was the count himself all along, still (laughs) looking to be about 40 to 45 years old. Shoshone. He he quickly became yeah he may be he quick yeah. but but Shoshone seemed to be like a man of morals and and, yeah. and this guy not maybe so much this guy, maybe this guy just thought he'd try on that set of robes I guess, for a while I guess for a few years right there we go so but but here Detox. but there in in New Orleans he he became an eccentric and sought after member of of the high society there still mm. never eating or drinking in public anything except his specialty. Special tea. Tea. So who was so who was Count Saint Germain? Was he a successful alchemist who found the secret of eternal life? Was he a time traveler, which is a whole other theory, um, or was he a highly intelligent man whose reputation became just a fantastic legend? And I got my my info at historicmysteries.com, Wikipedia, Ranker.com, and liveabout.com. Well, it would be uh, be realistic if he was immortal because it took us forever to get through that whole section. <laughs> well, you know, we got the peanut gallery right. over here. <laughs> You're welcome. You're welcome. I'm here all day. Please tip your way. I'll just do like I do. I'm, like, I'm just going to stay here and be quiet until y'all calm down. <laughs> I'm just going to wait here. Well, anyway. And now for something completely off topic and off kilter. Brace yourself for the oddity du jour. All right, oddity. You know, a recent article on BuzzFeed on November 16, 2021, got us thinking about some numeric time oddities that might catch you by surprise. I love these. For example, um, did you realize that Cleopatra, who was born in 70 BC, was actually born closer to the Apollo moon landing than she was to the construction of the Great Pyramid. And we kind of lump Cleopatra with Egypt and the pyramids. Exactly but right. The that pyramids were built a long time before her life. The, the pyramids actually were built in the 2500 BC. Yeah, one of my, um, so I have a few of these oddities as well. And woolly mammoths were still alive when the pyramids were built. Right. They are really, really ancient. They're, they're, they're coming up on 5,000 years old. That's, a, the pyramids that's unbelievable. Mm. Yeah. Barack Obama was the first president who was born under the same flag that he served under. Yeah, this one's going to drive you people crazy. Yes. He was born in 1961 in Hawaii, just two years after it became the 50th state. The United States flag has not changed since then. Uh, In the growing years of the United States, every time a new state uh, was added to the Union, the flag would change because they would add a new star. star. That's right. Originally, they started off adding a new stripe and a star, but it was starting to get too long, so... They went Wait, back to just what? The... No, they had more than 13 stripes at one point. Yeah, there were 15 and then I think 17 at one point. I didn't and know that. And then they thought, no, it's going to get ridiculous. Uh, too many stripes. 
And so they just add, they just add stars now each time. But okay, so there's 13 stripes for the f- the original 13, 13 colonies, colonies, right? And now there's 50. So now there's stars. 50 stars, but we haven't okay. changed that flag since 1959 uh, when when Hawaii became the 50th state. And he was born in 61, so he's the first president to actually serve under the same flag that he was born under. That's interesting. Now France, this is interesting. I was talking about. Uh, uh, talking about this today with my students about uh, King Louis the Sixteenth and Marie Antoinette, how they were guillotined. Did you know that France actually continued using the guillotine all the way up until 1977? Oh wow! That was the same year Star Wars was <laughs> released. Right. You know. <laughs> that's amazing. That that's unbelievable. The Wright brothers' first flight, and you know, the first flight was basically uh, pulled by I think. Um, Pulled by hand, originally kind of as a glider flight. Only 66 years later was the first moon landing. So really wow. quite amazing uh, development of uh, space flight. I mean, uh, and technology, air, air travel and right. technology in yeah. just a short amount of time, 66 years. And, and we've said it before, like this age is just – Right. We are ex- – we are um, – Evolve, not evolving. That's not the word. Our technology and everything advancing and it is advancing, is advancing at yeah. such a breakneck right. speed, like it, unseen. It's never been, you know, never been seen before. I think about my my grandmother who was born in 1899 and uh, lived until uh, the 1990s, and so uh, the changes she literally from the horse and buggy days to seeing space flight and the moon landing. Mm. Um. And then, well, and let me just interject here and say that Orville Wright was still alive, okay, when Hiroshima and Nagasaki were born, uh, bombed in okay, 1945. Yeah. Oh, wow. But yeah, that, so I mean, that, they, that, that there is like his legacy, his legacy kind of, of the flight right? ended yeah. up then witnessing a most devastation. Right. Right. Ugh. I mean, and, and we say that's his legacy. I mean, I'm sure he oh, felt yeah. that way, but that's not his legacy because right. no. we, le- we do. His legacy is that no, I think air his, travel air so travel much. Specifically. His legacy is that uh, the, the, the shape of an airplane wing is still the same today as it basically was what the Wright brothers direct, right. uh, developed, the For curvature sure. of the wing. Uh, they've they've advanced and added the little uh, upturn at the end. Uh, my son-in-law told me that it was – prevent drag that little upturn on the end of hmm. plane wings uh but it's still the basic design as as they came up with it uh the wings did well anyways we want irene triplett died in 2020 at the age of 90 up until her death she received 73 dollars per month from the department of veterans affairs from her father's civil war pension wow. yes that's the united states civil war her father moses triplett fought for the confederacy then Switch sides right before the Battle of Gettysburg. That was a good move. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he fathered Irene when he was 78 years old. Oh, wow. And I think his name was Mose. Just Mose, not oh, yeah, Mose. Okay, you're right. Mose Triplet. I That's like right. that Mose. name. Mose. Yeah. Mose. <laughs> well, anyway. Uh, oh, yeah. This kind of goes back to our earlier theme. Little House on the Prairie. Uh, author Laura Ingalls Wilder. She was born in 1867. And uh, during the horse and buggy days, she died in 1957 in the jet age again. Wow. Wow. That's interesting. You know, I read all of those books when I was a kid, and I always um, imagined her being, I didn't realize that she lived that long because as a kid, she lived in, you know, way back, right? 
And and I always imagined showing her new technology yeah, and, you yeah. know, just being friends with her and showing her stuff. And and uh, I had no idea that she actually <laughs> saw it. <laughs> witnessed all of that. Right. right. Now, this is an interesting one. Um, and there's actually a YouTube video on this one. The old TV show, I've Got a Secret. It was a game show back in the 50s and 60s. And uh, one one of the guests that came on was a fellow named Samuel J. Seymour. And his secret, I mean, he's on TV sharing this, but he was actually in Ford's Theater the night that Lincoln was assassinated. He was wow. only five years old. Wow. But he remembered seeing it. Remember seeing the, his, um, the, seeing John Wilkes Booth jump from the box onto the stage and, and yell something. Uh, and then, uh, you know, run off the stage, stumble off the stage. I yeah, think he broke, he broke his, his leg, leg when, right. he, when he landed on the stage. Um, but if you go to YouTube and type in uh, eyewitness to Lincoln's assassination, I've got a secret, uh, you'll find this uh, nice little clip. Okay, so he was 96. 96 at the time of, okay. the, of, the, of the taping of the show. And what Good. was he, five? He was five. Yeah, he was five yeah. when, it, right. when he saw it. Wow. Right. So quite a change there. And uh, finally, in 1889, seems to have been a really interesting year. It saw the birth of Charlie Chaplin, Adolf Hitler, and Charlie Chaplin played Adolf Hitler in a in a really good movie called <laughs> <laughs> the, the Dictator, I believe is what it was. Otto Frank and Frank's father, and Edwin Hubble of Hubble Telescope thing. Oh, wow. Other things that happened in, in uh, 1889, Nintendo was founded as a playing card manufacturer. <laughs> I didn't know that. Did That's you? That's impressive. No, yeah. that yeah, that is impressive. It's yeah. an innovative company yeah, that was managed so. to to move Keep, with the times. Right, Keep relevant all the way through. Exactly. The first jukebox went into operation at the Palais Royal Saloon in San Francisco, and the United States officially added North Dakota, South Dakota, Montana, and Washington as states. So we added four stars to the flag. Four stars. <laughs> And in 1889, Jack the Ripper was still on the loose. Not crazy, mm. and and he's it's never been, he's never been, uh, never been identified. identified by Count Saint Germain. <laughs> yeah. The Count did everything. He's, he's everywhere. Right? He's Rasputin. Right. He's the the, the, the wandering Drew. Yeah, he, Shoshone. He was bored. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay, okay. We are not going to start making conspiracy theories. Well, we already started that. <laughs> okay, here we go. We so can make them. I just don't believe any of them. <laughs> I don't either. It's just fun to say them. <laughs> so here we go. I've got some, some time oddities. Oxford University existed for hundreds of years before the Aztec Empire was founded. Uh Really? 1428. Oxford University has no known date of foundation. So the, the Aztec Empire was founded in 1428. Right. And the Oxford University has no known date of foundation, but there's evidence of teaching that goes back as far as 1096, That's making it yeah, it's the oldest university in the English-speaking world and the world's second oldest university in continuous operation. Wow. And speaking of universities, Harvard University did not offer calculus classes for the first few years after the school was established. Why not? Because calculus is... hadn't been invented yet. Whoa. <laughs> I'd, like to, I'd like to know who thought it was necessary to invent it. Yeah, right? Like, thank you. <laughs> Why do for we that? need that? It ain't broke. <laughs> <laughs> so modern calculus was developed in 17th century Europe by Isaac Newton oh. uh, and Gottfried Wilhelm Leibniz. Leibniz? I don't know how to pronounce that. Leibniz. Um, Leibniz, I think. Harvard was established in 1636. 
And then, did you know George Washington died in 1799, right, and the first dinosaur fossil was discovered in 1824? So dinosaurs, I didn't know that. So I didn't know about dinosaur fossils yeah. until that late. So George Washington never knew that di- dinosaurs existed. Wow. Um, and also the fax machine. Okay, so the okay. fax machine was invented the same year the first wagon crossed the Oregon Trail in 1843. <laughs> wow. The original fax mm-hmm. machine was called the Electric Printing Telegraph, and it was pa- patented in 1843 by Scottish inventor Alexander Bain. The same year that about a thousand people set off for the West uh, for Oregon. Forming a huge wagon train on what is now known as the Oregon Trail. So wait, wait. when they got there, they got there and noticed that their wagon insurance was late, uh-huh. <laughs> or they needed more extended warranties. And they right. and they faxed back home everybody so, that died of dysentery. <laughs> right. <laughs> so I got my information from BoardPanda.com. Well, what a good place to get it. <laughs> and now for something really smashing. All right, now back to our. Um, what is this topic again? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> people. Mysterious people. Mysterious Back to people. our mysterious people. We were really batting a thousand today. <laughs> Hysterical people. <laughs> well, here we go. From historicuk.com, we learn the interesting story of Kenneth Mackenzie. Oh, that's a good Scottish name, Kenneth Mackenzie. According to Scottish lore, Kenneth was born near the end of the 1600s in Loch Usie, near to Dingwall in the Scottish Highlands. Are they sure? Well, Dingwall. That's, that's, like that's, that. the, that's the legend. Okay, okay lore. It's lore. Okay. Lore. That's what it is, lore. Right. One night, Kenneth and his mother were walking through a graveyard where ghosts were known to wander about. Now, you wonder why they would do that. Yeah, I don't know. They're just chilling. I guess. Anyway, they came upon the ghost of a Danish princess on her way back to her grave. Hey, you I'm just going to walk across the street here. Yeah. <laughs> Hush. Out for a walk. <laughs> we're never going to get through this. In order to allow her to pass... <laughs> to her grave, Kenneth's mother demanded that the princess should pay a tribute and asked that her son should be given the second sight. First of all, what kind of wimpy ghost is this that you can't even go to your own grave? Well, no, wait, wait, that's a Scottish mother for you. Oh, okay. <laughs> that makes sense. Yeah, we had that thing about Andrew Jackson's mother, too. How did they see yes. him in the first yeah. place? We're also Scottish, so okay. In Scottish lore, the second sight was the ability to see both this world and another world at the same time. But wait, they're already seeing ghosts. Yeah. So really? <laughs> really? Did they have to ask for this? Well, I think it's uh, to see in the future is the idea. Oh, oh, okay. The second sight has never been regarded as witchcraft in Scotland, but rather it's been seen more as a curse. As in, <clears throat> cool, let me see if I can do my Scottish uh, accent. Oh, no. Ah, take patience while the lad has a set in his a terrible affliction. Sorry, uh, so sorry, guys. That wasn't so good. <laughs> anyway, was pretty and good till the end. <laughs> anyway, the legend goes that later that day, Kenneth found a small stone with a hole in the metal through which he could look and see visions. A hack stone. Yeah, Kenneth became known as the Bram Seer or the Kana Owa. Local tongue. His prof- prophecies were so impressive that they are still quoted to this day. Now, listen to some of these prophecies. They are. They will get your attention. Uh, he uh, he prophesied about the Battle of Culloden. Did I say that right? Culloden. Culloden. The Battle of Culloden, 1745. Well, that was some 50 years before he had, um, um, while he was saying this, uh, it was he prophesied about it coming 50 years later, which would make it sense because you don't prophesy about things that happened in the past. That would be a whole <laughs> other word now, wouldn't it? Uh, anyway, which he uttered at the site, and his words were recorded. Ah, oh, Drumsy. 
Thy bleak moor shall ere many generations have passed away be stained with the best blood of the highlands. Glad am I that I not see the day, for it will be a fearful period. Heads will be lopped off by the score, and no mercy shall be shown or quarter given on either side. Yeah, and, and the Battle of Culloden was really was a turning nasty. point in yeah. Scotland. Um, that was the beginning of the English rule, and there was yeah. famine, and it, it, that battle was so bloody. Anyway. Pretty nasty. Now, he also predicted the joining of the locks of the Great Glen. This was accomplished by the construction of the Caledonian Canal in the 19th century, so that was pretty impressive. He talked of great black bridleless horses, belching fire and steam, drawing lines of carriages through the Glen. Well, more than 200 years later, railways were built through the highlands. Here comes the train. Right. Maybe this is Count St. Germain. Dun, dun, dun. dun. <laughs> no, he was, a, he was somewhere else, wasn't no, he? No, but he was using a stone to look through. Yeah, he was looking yeah. through oh, a okay. stone. That's right. So he was the first stoner. Uh. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Send your letters to <laughs> Phil. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I'm here <laughs> all day. Remnantsdew.com. <laughs> Narcy oil was foretold. A black rain will bring riches to Aberdeen, he said. Uh, let's see. I'll get first. Kana Owa spoke of the day when Scotland would once again have its own parliament. This would come only, he said, when men could walk dry shod from England to France. Well, you know, the opening of the Channel Tunnel in 1994 was followed five years later by the opening of the first Scottish parliament in 1999. He didn't say over or under. He just he said, said they walk, could walk yeah, across dry the shod, land. Yeah. And you yeah. certainly That's can. That's impressive. Oh, yeah. yeah. Pointing to a field far from seashore, lock or river, he said that a ship would anchor there one day. Quote, a village with four churches will get another spire, said Kana, and a ship will come from the sky and moor at it. Well, actually, this happened in 1932 when a blimp made an emergency landing and was tied to the spire of the new church. Hmm. <laughs> at the height of his fame and powers, Owa uh, made his most notorious prediction which would ultimately cost him his life. You oh, see, you Isabella, the wife of the Earl of Seaforth and said to be one of the ugliest women in Scotland, <laughs> asked for his advice. She wanted news of her husband who was on a visit to Paris. She had a suspicion he was up to no good. Well, anyway, Owa reassured her that the Earl was in good health, and was but he no refused good. to elaborate further. <laughs> this enraged Isabella, who demanded that he tell her everything, or she would have him killed. Uh, Kana told her that uh, her husband was with another woman, quote, fairer than herself, and he foretold the end of the Seaforth line. Which will last, the last heir will be uh, deaf and dumb. And it turns out Francis Humbertston Mackenzie was deaf and dumb from scarlet fever as a child. He inherited the title in 1783. He had four children. All of them died prematurely. Mm. And the line, in fact, did come to an end. Wow. Well, you see, Isabella, she was really incensed by this. You know, it doesn't seem fair because she said, tell me or I'll have you killed. So he tells her and she and still, still has him killed. Have... Uh, and, is and this where "Don't Kill the Messenger" really needed to be prefaced? I think, yes. think that's the case. In fact, she had him thrown headfirst into a barrel of boiling tar. Oh, that's oh. so nice! Yeah, that's a, wow, a bad way to go. She needed to save that wrath for her husband. I think so. <laughs> well, you know, as impressive as all this is, well, there's really one little problem. You see, there's really no evidence that Kenneth Mackenzie ever actually existed. <laughs> Count St. Germain. There was a Kana Owa <laughs> documented living in the late 1500s. He was a gypsy, 
and he fa- he was found guilty of providing poison to a woman who wanted to do away with her, with her rivals. Um, it's a curious uh, thought. Now, were these two different people, or were they the same? Could the life of the gypsy and poisoner have been twisted into the story of the seer? Was the 16th century Connich the grandfather of the Braham seer? No one knows for sure. But whatever the truth is, the legend is well known and respected uh, even today. You see, there's this Celtic stone, the Eagle Stone, that stands in Strathpeffer. <laughs> Strathpeffer is S T R A T H P E F F E R. I'd love to live in Strathpeffer, don't you? Well, anyway, uh, this stone is there. The seer said that if the stone fell down three times, then Loch Usi would flood the entire valley so that ships could sail all the way to Strathpeffer. So far, the stone has fallen down twice. <laughs> We're not taking any And so they have now cemented it in concrete. <laughs> you know, no one is taking chances. <clears throat> That's knock, great. Try to knock this over. <laughs> <clears throat> okay, so bringing it to a little bit more modern days. Uh, Robert Johnson, okay? He was an American blues musician from the early 20th century who had mm. little commercial success or public recognition in his lifetime that went on to be recognized as a master of the blues. This man could play. Yes, particularly the Delta blues style. So born in 1911, Johnson grew up on a plantation along the Mississippi, Mississippi Delta. As a young man, he yearned for musical greatness. And so legend says that Johnson was instructed to take his guitar to a crossroad. There he was met by a large black man, presumably the devil, who took the guitar and tuned it. The devil played a few songs, then returned the guitar to Johnson, giving him the mastery of the instrument. In exchange for his soul, Johnson was able to create the blues for which he became famous. So Johnson had he he had one drooping eye and and it barely I mean it wasn't like really right. really bad but that he tended to turn away from his audience while performing well that started rumors of course it did yeah that and and the rumors spread that it spoke of an infernal connection proof of his dealing with the devil well Johnson though did little to discourage it he okay. liked that publicity I guess yeah if yeah. anything he fanned the flames so some of his lyrics. <laughs> Literally. Yeah. Okay. So some of the lyrics like early. Okay. Quote early this morning when you knocked upon my door and I said, hello, Satan, I believe it's time to go. So, I mean, that's kind of, you know, right there. So Johnson died in 1938 under mysterious circumstances. A lot of people think he was poisoned um, at the age of 27, Ugh. making him one of the members of the 27 yeah, Club. Many. Uh, that's another show. We that's need a whole yeah, different that's, show. Yeah, that's the name ascribed to the list of musicians and entertainers who all died at the young age of 27, including like Janis Joplin, right. Jim Morrison, mm-hmm. Heath Ledger. Um, some say Johnson succumbed to syphilis, which is pretty – others say it was again. poison that killed him. Still others contend it was just the devil collecting his due. Yeah, 27 though. <clears throat> yeah. <laughs> so yeah. I got my information I – mean, from Wikipedia and the lineup.com. Made me think of the Charlie Daniels song about the devil going down to Georgia. All right. <laughs> I love that song. Yeah. Well, now from LiveScience.com, we learn of, quote, the man in the hole. I say we learn of rather than about him because, well, no one really knows much of anything about him except that he digs holes to survive. Let's dig into this a little bit more, shall we? According to Survival International... Brazil is home to the world's largest population of uncontacted people. And 80 of these tribes are thought to live in the Amazon, 
subsisting through a mixture of hunting, gathering, and fishing. Their lands and livelihoods are under threat from encroaching industry and development. Besides the risk of violence from contact with outsiders, these indigenous communities are especially vulnerable to diseases like measles and the flu, to which they have no immunity. This isolated man is believed to be the only surviving member of his tribe. He has recently been spotted in the Brazilian Amazon. There is an organization called FUNAI, which is Brazil's Indigenous Affairs Department. I guess it's an organization of the Brazilian government. And they monitor uncontacted people. Well, they released some video footage recently of the man, nicknamed, quote, the man in the hole. In the video, the man is seen chopping trees with an axe. To protect him from external threats, Fanai said that it has been keeping tabs on the man from a distance for the last 22 years. The man lives in the forest of the Tanaru Indigenous Reserve, which was established in 2015. After confirming his location in 1996, Fanai had tried to contact the man, but he has always resisted. He has pre- uh, previously shot arrows at workers who got too close. <laughs> Coordinators with the agency stopped making attempts at contact in 2005. Instead, they watch him from afar and sometimes leave tools and seeds for planting in areas that he passes. The agency said that in the 1980s, farmers, illegal bo- loggers, and land grabbers encroached on the territory of isolated tribes in this region and many indigenous people were expelled from their lands or killed. Mm. During an attack in 1995, the remaining members of the Man in the Hole's already small tribe were killed, possibly by cattle ranchers. Oh, that, mm. that is sad. That is so wrong. We don't know the name of his tribe or what language he speaks, the indigenous rights group Survival International said in a Facebook post about the video. His people were probably massacred by outsiders who invaded the region. He survives because his territory is now finally being properly protected by the authorities. And what about the holes? Well, he digs them to live in and to trap animals in. It's remarkable that he has managed to survive in the Amazon by himself for so long. Oh, wow. That is, that's sad. That is very sad. So this next one is an ongoing mystery. So on December 1st, 1948 at 6.30 a.m., the police were contacted after the body of a man was discovered on Somerton Park Beach, about 11 kilometers or seven miles southwest of Adelaide in South Australia. The man was found lying on his back with his head resting against the seawall with his legs extended and his feet crossed. It was believed the man had died while sleeping. Witnesses came forward claiming to have seen him lying in the same position and location around 7 p.m. the night before. But they said that they saw him moving around a little bit. Another couple said they noticed the man on the beach, again in the same position, same location, around 7.30 to 8 p.m., but they never saw him move. They had the impression that he was drunk or asleep. So when authorities began their inspection of the corpse, they found an unlit cigarette on the right collar of his coat. A search of his pockets revealed an unused second-class rail ticket from Adelaide to Henley Beach a bus ticket from the city that may not have been used, a U.S.-manufactured narrow aluminum comb, a half-empty packet of juicy fruit gum, an Army Club cigarette packet which contained seven cigarettes of a different brand, which is interesting. interesting, 
I think they were called conceitas. Conceitas, yeah. And a quarter quarter full box of Bryant and May matches. The coroner determined that the man likely may have been poisoned, but was unable to reach a conclusion as to the cause of death or even the man's identity. A brown suitcase found at the Adelaide Railway Station was thought to belong to the man. Right. The suitcase had its label removed and had been checked into the station cloakroom after 11 a.m. on November 30th, 1948. Okay. It contained various items of clothing and toiletries, but nothing that, that would provide any definitive ideas behind the man's identity. The tags and all of the clothing had been removed, which... Sounds ominous now, but it was a normal thing if clothing was bought secondhand at that time. Okay, yeah. It's still yeah. normal today because people right. find them itchy. Yeah, well, yeah, that's yeah, true. Sometimes but, they don't come with tags anymore. But back then, people right. put their names on the tags of right. their clothing. And, and then if you got it secondhand, you'd want to remove that. Right. So this, this unidentified man may very well have been forgotten by history, as many John Doe's are, except for one thing. Sewn into the dead man's pants pocket, it was kind of like a secret pocket in a way, was a tiny piece of rolled up paper with the words Tamam Shud printed on it, like hmm. printed, not handwritten, but printed. Right. The other side of the paper was blank. Well, public library officials were consulted to translate the text, and it was identified as a phrase meaning ended or finished, found on the last page of the Rubaiyat, a book of poetry by Omar Khayyam. Okay. Police conducted an Australia-wide search to find a copy of the book that had its last page printed just like that with Tamam Shud and then blank on the other side because many different printings look a little bit different. Well, now this wasn't even just loose in his pocket. It was sewn into the to his pocket, right? Well, yeah. Well, it was it was like folded up, watered up, and then it was in like a secret part of his pocket that right. was sewn. Right, Yeah. Um, anyway, so, so – um, a photograph of the scrap paper was was released to the press, and they actually found the actual book, not just the the printing one, of the book, like but the actual. Yeah. No, they found the actual book Where that part the, of page the page was had been ripped wow. from. Yes, mm. um, the book had handwriting on the back cover, but it was in some sort of code and has never been deciphered. Wow! So, I mean, this this just makes this mystery um stand the test of time people are going to remember that yeah so a telephone number though was found scribbled in the back of the book it belonged to a nurse named Jessica Ellen Thompson who went by Joe that lived in a neighborhood very near to where the dead man was found Mrs. Thompson claimed that she did not know the man and had never seen him before in her life. But she did say that at some time late in 1948, an unidentified man had attempted to visit her and asked a next-door neighbor about her. Several people, including an author that later interviewed her as well as her own daughter, felt that Mrs. Thompson knew more about the man she was admitting to. Yeah. So her own daughter thought that as well as, as this. So in any case, the identity of the man is still a mystery today. But wow. there is much speculation that he was a spy due to the strange, strange circumstances of his death and the fact that there were a couple of sites nearby of interest to spies, like a, a uranium mine and a military search facility, research facility. Right. So according to a May 2021 article by Hillary Whiteman for CNN, the mystery may soon be solved, though. Oh, cool. So this has been this enduring mystery. Many, many, many yeah, people than, have. Uh, 70 years now. Yeah, they've discussed it and come up with all kinds of theories and, and everything. But now it may actually be solved because, you know, this DNA thing is going yeah. on. Like yeah, it, yeah. there's just, it's, it's amazing all the things that they're doing. 
So um, the grave marked with a headstone reading the unknown man was opened and Somerton Man's body was exhumed in order to extract DNA in a final effort to identify the man whose story has remained unknown all these years. Will he turn out to be a spy or just someone much more mundane? And just wanted to go see the sunset before right. he hopped the right. next train. <laughs> and just, yeah, and just happened to So, but one, um, it may take up to two years to complete the testing, but the answer is just around the corner. Wow. Well, stay one, tuned then. And, and I think what they're going to, what they're doing is the familial DNA. They'll, they'll try to figure out right. who his, his relatives living are. relatives are. So one person is eagerly eagerly waiting for results, and that's Rachel Egan, Mrs. Thompson's granddaughter. Oh. She ah. thinks that she might just be related to the Summerton man. You, you know, this mysterious circumstances would make you think that there was more going on there. That's right. Like that. Will the real Mr. Egan please stand up? <laughs> for sure. <laughs> well, now from the Birmingham United Kingdom Mail, we learned of the interesting unsolved story of Bella in the Witch Elm. Oh, I like this one. I've, <clears throat> I've read about this before. One day in 1943, four boys who lived in the Midlands near Birmingham, UK, went out tromping in the woods in search of bird's eggs. You know, it was during World War II, and food in the United Kingdom was pretty scarce. One boy named Bob scrambled up an old Witch Elm tree, and he let out a piercing scream. There wedged in the hollow was a skull. Oh. Later recall, there was a small patch of rotting flesh on the forehead with lank hair attached to it. The two front teeth were crooked. Well, it'd be some time before the boys, fearing that they would land in hot water for trespassing, raised the alarm. After all, they were unsure the remains were even human. In the end, though, it was the youngest of the egg collectors, Tommy Willits, who informed his father about what lurked in the woods. The police were summoned and upon their arrival were shocked to find the body of a woman. It appeared that she had been there for a couple of years. Her right arm had been severed and was located nearby. Mm. Also nearby was a note that said, quote, Who put Bella in the witch elm? Unquote. The murder scene bore some marks of a ritualistic satanic killing. The crime scene mirrored an, uh, an ancient ceremony known as, quote, Hand of Glory, unquote, where bones are scattered to the wind. A hand had been severed, a wad of taffeta wedged in the victim's mouth. One of her arms had been left 13 paces from the skeletal remains, an ancient custom used when a witch was executed. The choice of tree was also significant. A witch elm played an important part in the black arts. And to the mix, uh, to the mix add the fact that uh, belladonna is the ancient name for deadly nightshade. A plant closely associated with witchcraft. However, the police dismissed the idea of an actual ritual killing, rather believing that the murderer was using those symbols to try to be a, have a smokescreen to cover up their steps. Author Peter Simmel has spent considerable time researching the killing. He believes that Bella was a Nazi spy, and he bases his theory on the following. A Czech-born Gestapo agent, Joseph Jacobs, captured by the Home Guard in 1941 after parachuting into northern England, gave interrogators the name and picture of a woman. She was the spy's lover, Clara Byerly, a uh, B-A-U-E-R-L-E. I know, I know some people with that name. It's Bowerly. Bowerly, mm -hmm. yeah, Bowerly. A German actress and cabaret singer. Before the war, she spent two years working the West Midlands uh, music halls and had mastered a British accent. 
Clara had been recruited by the Gestapo and, with Jacobs, was given the job of creating a spy cell. Evidently, they were to observe and report back to Germany concerning, concerning activities at Birmingham munitions plants. Intriguingly, no showbiz records of Clara, no films, billboards, or record of uh, engagements exists after the spring of 1941. There you go. She simply just disappeared off the face of the earth. Soon after his interrogation, Jacobs was executed by firing squad. He holds the distinction of being the last person put to death at the Tower of London. That same tower that Henry VIII used to uh, keep his wives in back in the 1500s. (laughs) Well, there's no actual proof that Bella is, in fact, Clara Bowerly. However, recently an image of Bella's likeness was created by Caroline Wilkinson. Now, uh, Caroline is the expert that was tasked with rebuilding Richard III's face after his remains were found under a Leicester parking lot. Uh, the professor, uh, you may have seen that picture of Richard III that she created what he would have looked like based on his skull. The professor of um, cranial facial identification at Dundee University used photographs taken at the time to put a face to the name. She was not able to utilize the actual skull because, uh, well, the police have misplaced it. <laughs> Nobody knows <laughs> it, where it is. It's, a, it's on somebody's mantle it's somewhere. It's right? bound to be. Check the kids who had the eggs. <laughs> or it showed up in a hamlet place somehow. I lost right. poor York. I knew him well. Anyway, nevertheless, the image created by Wilkinson is of the face of a woman in her mid-30s, and it does bear a likeness to the photograph of Clara Bowerling from the late 1930s. According to the author Peter Simmel, no one who ever actually con- had contact with Bella would still be alive today, so they're asking people to search through their family albums for photos of family members who had gone missing. Thus far, there is still no match, but the spy theory is believed by many to be the most credible. So, yeah, and I guess the woman in the witch elm. I guess there's no DNA evidence for her. No, no final, final mystery solved. That's, so you mentioned a note that was found nearby asking who put Bella down the witch elm. That's how she got her name, Bella. Right, and that was uh, written on a wall in Upper Dean Street in Birmingham. And no, several other messages appeared around that time as well. Um. And and all kind of the same. Who put Bella in the witch right. elm? Um, so in throughout the years, I mean, all through these years, similar graffiti has appeared sporadically on the Hagley Obelisk near to where the woman's body was discovered, which asks the same thing. So it's it's just this continual mystery that <clears throat> that people are still very invested in. Who put Bella in the witch elm? And now it's time, boys and girls, for the trivia challenge. Hey! All right, you know how this works. Like and follow our Facebook page at Remnant Stew Podcast. Like and share this episode post. Put your answer to the trivia challenge question in the comments of that post. First person to do all that will be the winner and will be mentioned on an upcoming episode of Remnant Stew. Okay, so here we go. A mysterious teenager was found walking the streets of Jacksonville, Illinois. He was deaf and he couldn't speak or use sign language. A judge sent him to an institution where he thrived until his death in 1994 at the estimated age of 64. What was the name given to him and why? Ooh, good question. Interesting. And thank you, Harbin Gould, for that that question. 
Remnant Stew is created by me, Leah Lamp. Dr. Stephen Meeker and I research, write, and host each episode, along with commentary by our audio producer, Philip Sinkfeld. Theme music is by Kevin McLeod, with voiceover by Morgan Hughes. Special thanks to Judy Meeker and Harbin Gold. Check out our Facebook and Instagram pages at Remnant Stew Podcast. Drop us an email at staycurious at remnantstew.com, or just say hi. If you have any topics we'd like to hear in an upcoming episode of Remnant Stew, just let us know. Now, before you go, please hit the follow button so you won't miss an episode. Head over to Apple Music and leave us a review. We love seeing those reviews. Share Remnant Stew with your friends, family, co-workers, your weird uncle, the nerdy kid in fourth period, and Count St. Germain if you happen to run into him. Next door. Tell him we said hi. Until next time, remember to choose to be kind and, and always, always stay, stay curious. curious.